Bookcraft is pleased to present the fourth and final volume of the Jesus of Nazareth series by Truman G. Madsen, recorded live in the Holy Land. These presentations, all given on location in Jerusalem, occurred in the month of May, during the spring of the year. We understand that Jesus' birth, as well as his resurrection, occurred in the spring. The season was a season of the largest tourist boom in history, with Christian pilgrims from all over the world. I was with a group of about 50, and we, at each point, were surrounded by others jostling for position at the sacred sites. At various points, therefore, we will hear the wind, sometimes birds, footsteps, traffic, the sounds of jet airplanes, and other distractions. But as we concentrated, and as you concentrate, these distractions may help even to contribute to a sense of eyewitness presence. What we lose, of course, is the seclusion and solitude and quality of a studio recording. Having visited, as I have, each of these sites scores of times with persons of every background and every age, we've learned two things. One is that there is a moment of truth for almost everyone that cannot be predicted or manipulated. But when a sense of reality comes down as a kind of spiritual assurance. And the other is those who bring the Spirit of Christ with them see him or tend to see him everywhere in the Holy Land. Those who don't see him nowhere. We begin with a vista overview of Jerusalem which leads us from the Mount of Olives to Bethany and the tomb of Lazarus. And then we return to the Mount of Olives for a review of the chronology of Jesus last week. We're walking now on the very path or small road never paved to this day that leads from the top of the Mount of Olives uh, on down to the little village, the ramshackle village of Bethany. This is the locus of the last and according to John's chronology, the seventh miracle, the miracle of miracles that Jesus performed. Now we know that except for his time as a boy, in Nazareth, and then months, more than a year of months, that he spent with his mother in and around Capernaum, Jesus had no home. But if he had a home near Jerusalem, it was Bethany. He often said that birds have nests and foxes have holes but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Some of our modern writers have seen in that a deeper allusion to the 
significant truth that the temple, which was his, his house, was in fact in the hands of those who totally rejected him. Someday the righteous will dwell, quote, under their own vine and fig tree. Well, you see here still fig trees, many of them old, and vines, and though we cannot tarry very long, we can at least be looking at them as we review this event. Jesus, we're told, was east and perhaps north. In any case, a distance from Bethany when a messenger is sent to tell him that Lazarus is sick unto death. By the way, the name Lazar means God helps. And the name Beit Anya means house of affliction. But Jesus is not, we're told, anxious immediately to return. In fact, compares Lazarus' condition, even in death, as sleeping to the glory of God, which arouses some ridicule. He tarries, and we think deliberately, for three days. And on his return, the fourth day has come, Lazarus has died, been entombed, and John even adds the sentence, by this time he stinketh. The rabbis believed then and to this day that the soul, or shade, hovers near the declined or dead body for about three days. So there could be no question whatever else Jesus delay intended. There could be no doubt that this man is dead. Mary, we're told, is sitting. Sitting quietly is the translation. That's a clue to the typical practice of Jewish women in mourning. In the Shloshim, the 30 days of mourning, followed the woman, in fact, and often the man, sit without any real bodily comforts on the floor and visitors come to commiserate, to comfort, and themselves to mourn. The message that is delivered by Mary and Martha as Jesus returns comes down to, if only, if only you had come sooner. And Jesus at this is angered. The literal meaning of the word is that he shuddered and then said, apparently troubled on the one hand at the show of faith in his power to heal and on the other disbelief in his power to bring back. I, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me Though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now the King James has him going then to the tomb and standing outside, looking upward toward heaven, as incidentally he did before multiplying the loaves. And then saying, calling Lazarus by name, come forth. 
We have another source, perhaps apocryphal, but many scholars think it was written by the same man who wrote the Gospel of Mark. It's sometimes called Clement's Gospel of Mark. And it adds several details. The woman whose brother has died goes with Jesus to the tomb and is in an interesting sidelight rebuked by the disciples because she has said, O son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus goes into the garden where the tomb is and incidentally tombs anciently were vertical rather than spreading horizontally stacked as it were one on top of another to avoid extending the area which was forbidden for the Kohanim the high priest to walk through the cemetery was viewed then as now as defiling in the sense of ritual purity then says this other account Jesus not only spoke but stretched forth his hand and took Lazarus by the hand and he came forth from the tomb. The sequel is that this youth, and the fragment suggests he was young, loved Jesus, knelt as it were at his feet, begged that he might be with him, and the spirit of the narrative is that he commits or consecrates himself in radical contrast to the rich young man who had gone away sorrowing when Jesus said to him, Sell all thou hast and follow me. But Lazarus adds, Teach me the mystery of the kingdom. Throughout the New Testament, the word mystery often means not something utterly inscrutable, not something beyond mortal comprehension, but mystery, especially when it's mystery of the kingdom, refers to a ceremony or ordinance. So he's asking Jesus to teach him in some formal way. And on an evening after six days, Jesus joins him and, it says, he teaches him the mystery of the kingdom of God. Well, Lazarus is a man who was born, apparently, to die twice. And from this moment, the word of the miracle spreads like wildfire. Certainly, the, the healings and the raisings from the dead in the Galilee could have been written off by the hostile ones and the skeptics by saying Jesus was only present for a spontaneous recovery or the person wasn't really dead or these are old wives tales but now apparently Lazarus is known throughout his own area and beyond and secondly the tale of this reaches the ears of the officials not far away in Jerusalem and they meet and begin from that hour to resolve to find a way to stop Jesus' career. Now we can uh, return the way we came. 
I should remind myself and you of the gentleman 80 years and beyond who insisted that he would walk as anciently did Jesus from Bethany to the Garden of Gethsemane. We said to him, that's dangerous. It was dangerous then, it is dangerous now. He said, I want to do it at eventide. We said, that's even more dangerous. You could lose your life. And he smiled and said, what a way to go. Now look to your right and notice again that beyond and east there is nothing except the rolling hills of the Judean desert, bleak, barren, a bit threatening. In the time of Jesus, there were even ferocious wild animals, and not a place anyone would this day want to go. We've come here on the Mount of Olives to look over the remnants of the ancient city. And before we talk of specific events in the life of Jesus, let me give you John's chronology for the last week. It's different than the others somewhat, and one can take it not just by days, but by the names of the days. In the Jewish calendar, on Nisan, which was the 8th of the month, which ordinarily overlaps with April, on Nisan 8, a Saturday, a Shabbat in Jewish reckoning, was the anointing at Bethany. On Sunday, the triumphal entry. On Monday, a return to Jerusalem, and the incident you remember of the fig tree. On Tuesday, preparation for the Passover. And that evening, the Passover lasting until late in the evening. And then, at the garden, after the most traumatic night in history, the arrest of Jesus and his examination before Annas, who then sends him to Caiaphas, and apparently that night he is imprisoned. The 12th of Nisan, Wednesday, the trial begins before the Jewish people. Then Thursday, that trial finishes in the morning, and the Romans begin to cross-examine Jesus, and he's brought before Herod Antipas. On Friday, the Roman trial and Pilate's action ends and the crucifixion occurs and that evening at sundown the official Jewish Passover begins. One following this tradition then learns that the death of Jesus occurred at the very time when Passover lambs were being brought down the Mount of Olives taken to the pool for cleaning and then up to the altar to be slain at the temple. Now, you hear the singing of birds. It is one of the great paradoxes that Jesus, who taught that not even a sparrow falls to the ground unnoticed, not even a hair of the head 
falls, should himself now go through a week when it appears no one, no one cares except apparently to increase and intensify his grief. We're walking on the shoulder or other side of the Mount of Olives and now looking down on shrines that have been built to commemorate the raising of Lazarus. The ruins there that appear to be old are the traditional ruins of the home of Simon the leper. The church is built near the place of the tomb and there is today a tomb with a different opening than anciently which could very well be the tomb in which after three days Lazarus under the command of God emerged resuscitated and alive. In the home of Simon the leper the record tells us that Mary, Mary of Bethany, who I believe is also Mary Magdala, opens an alabaster box filled with ointment and uses all of it. The record says it was very costly. How costly? Well, by calculation of a daily wage, it would have taken a person at least 300 days to earn this amount of money of this precious oil apparently a combination of pistachio perhaps also spikenard and olive oil sweet aroma fills the house Judas according to one account and the other disciples according to another chide Mary why was not this sold and the money given to the poor. And Jesus quietly rebukes the disciples, not Mary. In Matthew, he comments that this shall be told forever as a memorial of her. So something here is to teach us of Mary, of woman, and of a gift of life. But the other and more precise statement of Jesus, as we have it in the JST, says she has done this in token of my burial. So Mary wittingly or not anticipates that Jesus is soon to be killed. This is the setting of his statement, the poor you have always with you, me, ye have not always. He is the one who will eventually, if only we are meek, grant us the highest riches until there will be no poor. In passing, let me say that in Aramaic, pistikos, the word uh, behind the translation of the pistachio oil, means faithful or faith and here is one manifestation of Mary's faith and recognition of who Jesus really is and her coming to the tomb later with further oils to anoint Jesus even after his death 
with hope beyond hope and with faith beyond faith. It must have required some courage for a woman to approach a tomb early in the morning, alone. This same Mary demonstrates that woman may have faith stronger than that of man. In uh, Matthew, we are told that she anointed his head. In Luke and Mark, it is added his head and feet. And here we touch on a passage that appears in all four of our modern sources of sacred writ originally in Isaiah. How beautiful, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. If we singularize mountains and focus on where we are now, this is the mount, maybe the most important mount in the world, the Mount of Olives. And Puzzling as it may be, that feet should be thought beautiful. Let me say that there is resonance in my soul for this marvelous prophecy and exclamation. I once, having had radical surgery involving bone grafting, was in such pain that I pulled the chain in the hospital room and cried out, Nurse, nurse, can I have one more shot? But the doctor had given orders, no more, lest I become addicted. No, she said no, and I pled. And finally she agreed. But what she brought me was not a shot of morphine, but a placebo. She administered this shot, and I waited, gritting my teeth and my fists for the relief, which did not come. But to this day, I remember the sound of her footsteps in the hall. Beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of her or him that bringeth good tidings, but see, not just tidings for the ear, news penetrating the heart, release and relief, and publisheth peace. Oh, the peace that comes in the wake of terrible pain. It was on such a day as this, a hot day, perhaps a day, a hamsin, as they say here now, of which they have many, maybe 70 a year. A day so hot that it's the very desert heat that permeates the air. Jesus would have hiked, for it is not a walk, from Bethany over to Jerusalem and seen in the distance a fig tree. Today, right over there, a church built in Bethphage, as it's called, the house of figs. A certain species of fig tree puts forth its leaves and at the same time puts forth figs. So the sure sign of fruitfulness is the abundance of leaves. Jesus had every reason to expect that when he reached the tree there would be a thirst-quenching or tongue-soothing fig. There were none. One account says that there was apparently no fig. No, there were no figs. And he cursed 
the fig tree and it withered a harsh thing what's what's to be said about this seemingly wrathful act well the next day we read Peter returns to see that it has dried up obviously one message is that in the Lord's vineyard a dead tree and this tree was in fact dead if by death you mean unfruitful simply cumbers the vineyard and must be cut down and burned and so it will be for those of us who advertise or proclaim by our foliage by our words that we are true disciples but are fruitless the disciples were told that he had ordained them that they should bring forth fruit and abundantly but there's another point here here is where he stood and said to Peter who was apparently in awe of this if ye have faith ye shall say to this mountain depart and it shall depart all my life I read that to mean any mountain if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed ye shall say and so on but he says this mountain that may be significant for it is this very mountain the Mount of Olives which according to Zechariah and according to our own modern revelation DNC 45 and 133 that Jesus will descend he will come as the apostles were told as they were gazing up into heaven he will so come in like manner as they saw him go and he will bring with him the hosts of heaven including I take it Peter and the other disciples who are ultimately to be given the keys of judgment it is when his foot his beautiful foot now glorified and resurrected touches this mountain it will cleave in twain the whole earth will be transformed and with it in due time the whole human family hence Peter I say unto you that this mountain shall depart it will become two mountains a valley in between and this will attend both the downcoming of Zion from above and the upreaching of Zion from beneath this is the end of side one Please continue listening on side two.